identity is a powerful concept as it attempts to speak to who we are as individuals. Defining and discovering who we are is such an important part of growing up, which often develops into a lifelong journey of self-discovery. But this inquiry isn't just a self-indulgent pursuit. Scholars within sociology, psychology, anthropology, and many other disciplines have long been fascinated by what identity is and what it tells us about the human existence. But in recent years, it's seemingly become a word fraught with negative connotations. Political commentators and media outlets often criticise the weaponization of identities as a way to form exclusive political alliances that stray away from traditional party politics. And some argue that the increased interest in identity is creating a more divided world. But after listening to Iggy London's view of identity and how it shapes his life and work, I'm interested in gaining a more general understanding of what identity actually means, both historically in the context of today's society. To understand this, I'm speaking to Ferhan Sambanani, a lecturer and researcher of social anthropology specialising in grassroots community building and the shaping of political consensus in diverse areas. Ferhan's career has seen him work with community groups and national and international organisations ranging from teenagers in Kilburn, London, to the World Bank and Oxfam. He has advised on a range of issues around migration, diversity, policy and inclusivity, and has written about his research in popular press, including articles in Aeon Magazine and the Huffington Post. So we talk about the meaning of identity, why it's important, and his take about the role of identity in black masculinity. I just want to say real quick, thank you so much for speaking with us today. Well, thank you for inviting me. I want to start this by talking about the idea and concept of identity. I think it's fair to say that the concept of identity is very elusive. Mm -hmm. As an anthropologist, how do you define it? So, you know, I would start by saying, first of all, I don't think there's a right answer to that question, right? And I think... People should use that word however is useful and clarifying to them. What I find useful in my own work as an anthropologist, as you say, is to sort of think of it in three ways or as coming from three places, right? So there is sort of the identity that is ascribed to you, right? And for people of color in the UK, that is often, you know, based on how you look or people making assumptions about where you come from in the world, um, based on your accent, all these sorts of things, but it can related also to how you dress, how you carry yourself, right? Class has a big thing where like people can twig class sometimes just by like your bodily comportment, but they might also be getting it wrong. You, know, you might just like walk proper for some reason or talk proper for some reason and, 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 and they've misread these things, right? So one way of understanding identity is it's how people read you. The next way, I would say, of understanding identity is it's about how groups think about themselves collectively, right? So sometimes we talk about like the Asian community or the Somali community. We talk about punks. We talk about the business community and things like that, right? And to some extent, what we're trying to do is refer to groups who have a self-understanding of themselves as groups and as united by something meaningful. Now, the stuff of that like meaningful commonality might actually change a lot, right? So the idea that we are a group can almost precede defining it in any precise way and, and, and actually work to hold people together, right? But the, there's the identity on that kind of collective level. And then there's identity as who do you think you are, right? And 
we all have our own sense of who we think we are. And we all probably have our own blind spots when it comes to that as well. So it's not that our own sense of identity is this sort of perfect mental map of everything that's going on in our head and all the influences and all the things that make us up, but it's our own impression of those things, right? It's like a little compass that sort of steers us going, I am this sort of person. I can do these sorts of things. I belong in these sorts of spaces. And that compass can be reflective or not so reflective of kind of our underlying influences. But again, it's, it's quite personal and that, that changes over our life. Identity matters at all three of those levels. So is it fair to say that the significance of all three will vary in different time periods? Yeah, totally. Different time periods, different points in your life, and across different groups, right? So again, if we're talking about groups who are racialized in the UK, that first element of ascribed identity can be pretty intense, but at the very least has this extra dimension that people who sort of pass within whiteness don't have to contend with, right? So all of us contend with class, all of us contend with gender, we're read according to gender codes, you know, what is my pink jumper saying to you? Uh, um, but at the very least, there's much less of that scrutiny and kind of top-down reading going on when it comes to whiteness than when it comes to sort of racialized or minoritized identities. So that definitely varies. But yeah, these things also vary across history, right? I live in London, and I, I think right now in London, you know, you could say that if you're out on the street in certain areas people don't read you as much, at least, according to, you know, what you look like, where they think you might have come from, as they might do in other parts of the country. But they might be interested in, like, where in London are you from? And, you know, like, what are your ends? So, so they might read you in different ways across space, across time. These things definitely shift. Why is understanding about identity helpful? Like, at least identity as a political and social construct? So I think you can take it back to those three forms of identity, right? Um, when we think about the identities that are sort of imposed on us or the ways in which we're read, those give us a sort of map to some of the political stakes and challenges that we're going to face, both on a day-to-day level and on a bigger societal level, right? How does how I am perceived influence whether or not my teachers think I'm clever or disruptive, right? How does how I am perceived influence whether or not people are going to make me feel like I belong in certain spaces or that I'm capable of certain things, right? There's real and pretty weighty political stakes tied to how people are read and the habits kind of around that, right? So that's one thing. And then the second thing, when we're talking about collective identity, you know, I think at stake in that is this question of like, what can we do together, but also what do we owe to each other, you know? I was talking to a student of mine the other day, who I hope won't mind me sort of sharing the story, but they're from Singapore and they were talking about being judged for how they dress, because they were dressing a bit unconventionally, specifically as they put it by like Asian aunties, right? So there's some sense of like, hey, we look like we're part of the same group and therefore I have a right, I somehow entitled to sort of judge you on what you're doing with your body. Whereas it wouldn't just be any stranger, right? But there's some sense of like that collective identity. So on one hand, you get all these really nice things that come through of like community and solidarity and people sort of sticking up for each other because they, they sense that they have something in common. On the other hand, there's a sort of sense of like claim or obligation that can come with it and have this sort of more constrained side, right? And then lastly, you know, the personal sense of identity, well, I think it is, especially in Western society, is this big animating force, right? We talk about cultivating an identity as a pretty key part of who we are and what makes life meaningful. 
And, you know, with the anthropologist hat, I'd say that's not the case everywhere in the world. And that's certainly not been the case all throughout history. But it is right now, you know, a major dimension of what gives us meaning is, you know, do I have a sense of who I am? And do I value that sense of who I am, right? Like, am I, am I a person who I like and who I can see other people liking and respecting and valuing? I think that can also um, lead on to why there can be um, a bit of a, like an identity crisis for like people of colour, especially in the UK, you know, whether we're second generation or born and bred in the UK, I think a lot of people of colour struggle trying to navigate a true sense of self, you know, and obviously because these environments, educational media, I mean, just all environments, to be honest, in the UK are very... Uh, white dominated we have our differences and what makes us authentic and unique however like more than not there can be a lot of cases where like it's like okay i'm trying to like center to like distinctive britishness and like whiteness you know it's quite interesting mm-hmm. that comment you made about your student but yeah no i think um i think more than not we find it very difficult to um embrace our true inner selves whilst also trying to like cater to like Britishness and whiteness. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why so many people who are people of colour or migrants or second or third generation have such issues trying to like, I guess, just blend into like British culture, really. So that's yeah. fair to say. Yeah. And I think I think one of the things that makes that especially difficult and unfair is the way in which Britishness is often passed off as not an identity or as a very neutral identity. Yes. Right? Yeah. So actually it comes with all these hierarchies and codes and systems for putting some people ahead of others but at the same time everybody's told but particularly people of color are told you know this is a neutral system and you've got to play by its rules because it's sort of it's, it is fair and is inclusive and it is for everyone when your experience and the experience of many many people is that it's not mm-hmm. um, and and that's been happening you know for ages again class becomes a part of that right that's part of the sort of unfairness of britishness is that that sort of thing about it's a national identity and we're all in this together like you know no we're like when we go to war certain groups bear the burden of that and when we have austerity certain groups bear the burden of that and it's not we're all in this together no matter how much that is a slogan but then it 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 hits differently for people of color where they're really expected to sort of perform and do that quite perfectly almost to maybe a higher standard than white british peers because it's treated as sort of neutral and accessible when actually it also ends up reproducing all these hierarchies that often disadvantage them in the first place. I, th- I think the other thing with people of color is often it's like lose-lose, right? So um, in the book that I wrote recently, came out the past year in 2022, one of the examples I was talking about was um, Nadia Hussain, right? Who won Bake Off. Um, yeah. And she got, you know, on the one hand, all this sort of Islamophobic abuse for being a hijabi woman on a quite a prominent TV show, right? And um, being out there in that way, that was sort of like, you're not British. Like, why are you on the great British breakup? You know, like, how are you the face of this thing, right? And then sometime later, she wrote in a newspaper about like what she does. It was like a cooking thing, right? But what she does to celebrate Christmas and like her Christmas recipes and so on. And then she got a whole bunch of abuse being like, you don't celebrate Christmas. So it's right. Sometimes it's like a lose-lose where it's like you're, you're being demanded to sort of play by these rules and then you try to do that and then you're told they're not for you. And that can be particularly tough. Yeah, you, you just can't win. It's double standards because I, feel, I saw this really amazing, I wish I could credit this person, but I can't remember who said it. And I saw this amazing video and it was basically saying how like we're British when you're profitizing off us, making money of us, money off us even, 
monetizing off us. However, like when we're losing or when we're trying to show what's authentically us and makes us different, mm-hmm. suddenly we're we're not British. We're we're, we're yeah, Jamaican. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're Asian. We're Caribbean. We're African. You know. And it's yeah. very, um, I don't know, just quite infuriating as a person of color, you know, especially for like who you just said, like, do you know what I mean? They like, they've won the show for a reason because they're quite clearly more capable than anyone else that they were competing against. But yeah, I don't know. It's very, um, it's very backwards. Yeah. That double standard, I think it's particularly frustrating. Very prominent as well, I find. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I think it points to this sort of underlying notion that somehow like, well, I, I guess two things, right? So one is that when you're being told, oh, you got to fit in, then then the sort of implicit message is that because Britishness is this sort of neutral thing, it's not a real identity, you know, you can still be who you are and do, do Britishness at the same time. It's universal, you know? And then, mm-hmm. and then when you're being kind of pushed away and like, no, it's quite particular and actually it's under attack from all these people like you or whatever. Those contradictory messages to me, I think then point to the way in which identities are tied to privileges, right? So like, actually, the reason why people are not always welcome in Britishness is partly because embodying Britishness is a mark of privilege. It gets you through doors. It allows you to do things, you know. If, if you go back in history and you look at the kind of early post-war migration to the UK, everybody within the empire and even the Commonwealth, right, so the, the nations that had left the empire to become independent, were sort of still considered British subjects. And for quite some time, really about until 1962, they had equal citizenship rights, right? They, they, they had the right to kind of come over and live and make your life in the UK. And they were taught in schools that like the UK, in many cases, especially in the Caribbean, but elsewhere as well, you know, the UK was a mother country, right? So that like you did belong here, right? And then people started coming over and they're like, no, 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 we didn't need that, right? <laughs> um, just kidding, right? Like, actually, we need immigration restrictions. And they started rolling back on those equal citizenship rights. Because the implications of that, you know, Britishness can be universal as long as the world is then not coming to the, you know, to, to the door of the UK and asking for their share of the pie and asking for some of the colonial spoils to come back to them. And then as soon as people start making those claims, they're like, ah, actually, Britishness is something quite particular, right? And I think that is still the dynamic that we see today, right? That when it becomes about accessing some of those privileges that come with the dominant and the sort of new, so-called neutral identity, mm-hmm. then people get pushed away, get pushed out of it, right? Because yeah. the implications would otherwise be like the whole world has a claim on Britishness, which is kind of true in a way. It's quite scary the dominance that um, Britishness has, to be honest. It's very mm-hmm. uh, universal. And, Amer- and American cultures, I think we're very, well, we're just westernized now, aren't we? Like the world's just very, like, very westernized. And I think um, it kind of, um, I guess, neglects other cultures which are outside of Western cultures, which have had severe significance on many sectors like the economy well even saving the uk to be honest i don't think the uk would have the stability i mean i wouldn't call it stable at the moment to be honest but like the the stability which was built which has a lot of um well like contribution due to like people of color do you mean like african caribbean and asian people you know but um so can i can i jump in yeah go on yeah lots of thoughts here and and you know there are other social scientists, right? People like um, the Black British sort of social science philosopher Paul Gilroy writes a lot about like what he calls post-imperial melancholia, which yes. is sort of this sort of depressed inability to let go of the sense of sense of Britain as an empire, and it, and it's sort of true in a way because like 
Britain was basically a world power because it had the empire. And the empire was a very mixed bag. Lots of things happened. But effectively, one of the major things that it was was an extractive project. It was about taking wealth from elsewhere and concentrating that in the UK in a way that made it into such a globally dominant power, right? And so <laughs> it's actually hard to think of the UK as a world player and as a sort of prosperous society without implicating the empire, impl implicating what was sort of taken and exploited um, overseas. But then if you follow that through to the logical conclusion, then it's also like a bit, <laughs> you know, de depressing if you're coming from that kind of like rural Britannia perspective, because actually it does imply that you owe something back. And that, that becomes sort of untenable when you really follow through the implications of that, right? And so on the one hand, there, there's this sort of desire to think about Britain as encompassing and as global and as accepting and multicultural in the present day. And on the other hand, all these sharp lines get driven, sorry, sharp lines get drawn, particularly when people start making claims on that. So when we're talking about the identity, say, through the um, lens of black men, mm -hmm. Many of whom have, like myself, who have parents or grandparents who have migrated to the UK as either part of the Windrush, Windrush even, sorry, or um, the African diaspora. What effect does migration have on identity? Yeah, I mean, it's a complicated one, right? Because everybody responds to these circumstances differently. But we can see patterns, right? And one of the patterns you see is that the first generation of people to come over, especially if you come over when you're a little bit older, there's, there's a strong attachment to where you came from still. That's part of who you are and how you're oriented your life. Because, you know, migration is this big upending of everything new and everything you took for granted. And so like lots of, lots of first generation migrants, again, particularly those who talk about who, who came over when they're a bit older, you know, there's often this dream of going home, building a house back home. People send money a lot, you know, mm -hmm. they keep up all these relations with relatives and all these things. So that there's this sort of double orientation where you're living and you're working and you're taking part in the society where you are, but you're also oriented to somewhere where you came from. But then, of course, like, actually, we know very few of those people end up going back home because, like, over time, you do end up building your life in Britain or wherever you've ended up, right? So you end up with this sort of hybrid identity, but it can feel also kind of a little bit painful and conflicted, right? Mm -hmm. um, when you look at younger generations, right? So people who migrated when they were a bit younger or like the children of migrants, then it's a totally different thing, right? Because now the UK or wherever your parents have moved to is part of the background of things you take for granted, right? And so whether or not you identify as British, you probably like absorbed a lot of Britishness in you, you know, you've absorbed the way British streets look and not get yeah, on the like whatever, right? You've absorbed a certain way of talking, a certain pop culture, like all these things, they are part of who you are, right? You've got your friends. And yet you're going to have all these experiences often of exclusion, of racism, of conflict, and those can throw that sense of belonging also into doubt. And then, you know, and maybe there's your parents and your parents are all about the traditional thing or whatever it is. So you can be pushed and pulled in all these different directions. So again, there's both this kind of creative thing that emerges for younger generations that can be about, you know, fusing things together in creative ways and drawing on their ancestry, but reproducing it in a different way in modern Britain. Or it can be quite a lot of pain and conflict as well. And that, that often comes down to the different circumstances that individuals find themselves in. And so, you know, you get all these responses from younger generations that range from 
this sort of, you know, total cultural creativity and like remaking Britishness to like finding new forms of fundamentalism or whatever and doubling down on maybe some of the, you know, cultures that they came from or religious backgrounds that they came from, even in ways that their parents weren't doing, right? And, but all of that becomes a way of navigating all those tensions that they're finding themselves within. I feel like also, I don't know if, forgive me if I'm wrong in saying this, I don't know if you've, um, I, don't, I don't know how, how wide your network is with like migrants to first and second generations. I think something that I've realized is, so I don't know how, how to refer it. So it's not, my, it's not my parents and my grandparents. What I've realized is quite recently while having, because a lot of my friends are like second generation Caribbean African. And um, I think a lot of us younger generation, maybe, maybe Gen Z is appropriate. Let's go with that. I would say I'm more um, conscious of like the mistreatment, like ongoing mistreatment of people of color in the UK, which is really interesting because I feel like when I look back and I do my reading and like my research and all of that, it seems like back then, so I don't know, my grandparents moved in what, the 1950s? 19, mm-hmm. Yeah, 1950s. Yeah, let's go with that. And um, from what I hear from them or what, from what I did hear from them, sorry, my great uncle and aunts and whatnot, it sounds like it's very... Um, it's more physically physically direct, whereas now it's more like microaggressions and more like subtle like forms of like mistreatment. But when I have a conversation with my grandparents or my older relatives, they they don't really um, acknowledge how well like, how pivotal it was. Whereas like me yeah. and my like circle who are like twenty five and underneath, all very much like oh no, like we're like we're going through this now and this is like horrific. And I think that's a real generational shift. Which is really interesting because I think, would I say they have it worse off? I think the older generations inevitably had worse uh, experiences of, of racism and mistreatment, whereas we're, I don't think we have it nowhere near as bad. I mean, obviously it's still bad inevitably. However, I feel like we're like more like, definitely more vocal about it. And we're more like um, aware and more conscious and we're more open to having conversations. Whereas I don't know if that's because my grandparents have thicker skin than me <laughs> and they're just like willing to like get on with it and just proceed. No, no, it's, it's super interesting, right? And I've noticed the same thing. So I guess for your listeners sake, you know, I work as a researcher, as an anthropologist in the UK and I work with a lot of local communities and I try to do this really collaboratively, right? Like yeah. in, volunteer, play football at the youth club, get my butt kicked, um, <laughs> all these sorts of things, right? And try to do that across a range of very diverse communities. So, so I, I spend loads of time talking with people from different backgrounds. And that is a very common story, right? Like that's super familiar. You know, you talk to older people and they, they really, I think there was a sort of physicality, it's a really visceral racism that they faced in the 50s, 60s, 70s, even multiple stories of people that I've heard being like the first black family on the block. And like the kids were like being chased home from school with rocks, right? Being thrown at them. Really horrible stuff. Does that mean younger generations are like thin-skinned? I don't think so. Right? I think a few things are happening. One is that they don't have the experience of their parents or grandparents or whoever moved of like migration is a risk, right? But it's a choice that you make at the end of the day, right? And there's a difference between... I am choosing to put myself out there to some extent. Yeah, because life is probably quite hard where I'm coming from. But, you know, you know it's not necessarily going to be easy where you're going, right? And you have that sense of, like, taking it on as a project versus, like, I was born here and people are still shitty. Those are two very different lenses. And, like, you'd probably be right to feel entitled to, like, more acceptance in some ways had you not made that choice, right? So that's one element of it, which is not really about toughness, but just about generations, right? 
but I think the other element of it is like the way in which justice progresses, right? So like if people are being physically violent to you, that is often just a priority. But when you get that sorted out, then it opens up some space to think about economic injustice, to think about the way in which your culture is being marginalized or denigrated, right? So like sometimes just, you know, you got to stop getting beat up and get some breathing space. You got to get decent jobs and get some breathing space. And that doesn't mean those other issues are lesser, just that they're less immediate, right? So like, again, that's kind of a generational thing. And then the third thing I think is about like frustration and the time it takes to confront this, right? So like, Again, when you talk about people's kind of grandparents' generation or like, the, you know, the early Windrush generation, those sorts of things, a lot of people knew they were kind of migrating over for factory jobs or, you know, not, not the best opportunities, but opportunities. Oh, semi-skilled, low-skilled, yeah. Yeah, yeah, but maybe better than what they had. And some people were, you know, migrating for better stuff, right? They were nurses and doctors and all other stuff too. But people sort of had some sense of what they were going to get into, but then they had the sense that like, we can come and we can struggle and we can fight and we can build a better life, right? And so in some ways you put up with it in the short term with the hopes that it'll get better in the long term. Like actually, you know, this is sort of, so my family are in Canada and they, they came there as refugees. And that was sort of their experience. You know, they started in these really menial jobs and then they sort of worked their way up a little bit. But that isn't the case for everybody. And so I think economic exclusion and economic justice and cultural injustice and all these things, again, hit differently when like you're the first generation coping with it, but you, you still have this belief that it could get better through your hard work and through, you know, showing how vital and vibrant your culture is and all these sorts of things. And when you're the third generation, you're like, man, it's been going on for a long time, right? So again, I think that sensitizes you to it in a different way. Mm. Do clear collective identities still exist in the globalized and increasingly online world? Is that fair to say? Yeah, I, I, I think they do. I think they're, they're much more moving targets. So like, you know, we're, we're much more able to reshape ourselves these days. Yeah. To a whole bunch of media and influences from all over the world. Globalization also means capitalism in some ways that, you know, is giving us this endless array of, you know, um, economic choices that we can make, but often with costs that are disguised from us because they occur elsewhere in the world, you know, factories collapse in Bangladesh, pollution is in China. And so we don't have to face those costs, but we can make these sorts of free choices and they can feel empowered. And so we have all these, we have a greater capacity, I think, to shape our identities and to do so by encountering other identities and then being like, oh, I'll take that or I like that or I'm inspired by that or whatever, or I'm in dialogue with this, right? You talked earlier about like how influential the US is, right, in all of this, which I think is a big thing. Yeah, very much so. But I think, you know, the flip side is people still are drawn towards finding a sense of community and a sense of shared identity, not just personal identity a lot of the time. So I, I think those two things are in tension, but they also play off each other. And so what you sometimes see is people do form these communities, but they might also break apart more quickly or shift to other things or reorient themselves. And you can find even within kind of minority communities, they're, they're a lot more plural within themselves. You know, it's like... Yeah, you know, people might have a sense of like being Black British or being a migrant or being a minority or whatever it might be. But then actually there's loads of ways in which people have interpreted that. And there's even sort of subcultures coalescing around different ways of living that, right? Um, that kind yeah. of come and go. If we move on to the idea of, or the concept even of harmful identities. So the term identity has been getting a lot of bad rap 
lately, if that's fair to say, with it almost being deemed as a pejorative when aligned with the word politics. So like a lot of your work examines belonging and creating more uh, harmonious societies. So do you think examining your identity like is helpful or harmful? Like, is it like empowering or is it like divisive? Hmm. Yeah, it's a great question. So I think one of the really ironic things about backlash that we're seeing to like what gets termed identity politics these days is it's coming from people who've always been able to take that identity thing for granted, right? Which is to say that again, yeah. being white, being white, British, whatever, is not not identity. It comes with particularity, comes with you know a certain set of cultural markers, a certain set of values, a certain set of interests in particular, right? That mm. might, might be debated, but they're sort of you know also draw people together in certain ways. But people have been able to take those things for granted, right? So like one of the interests behind like kind of white Britishness is just like prosperity, right? Like that, like you know. Britain is a relatively wealthy nation, despite current cost of living <laughs> um, issues, and people want to keep it that way, right? Um, and people are invested in keeping it that way, but also people take it for granted that it should be that way, right? They don't like asking those questions about where did that wealth come from? What paid for the Industrial Revolution? Whose labor subsidized all that post-war rebuilding? Because those are answers that would say you owe a lot more to the rest of the world and to you know, your former colonies and so on who did pay for the Industrial Revolution, who did subsidize through cheap labor, a lot of the post-war rebuilding and the welfare state um, and all these things. You just want to be able to take them for granted as part of your world, right? And so you actually are invested in not thinking of your identity as an identity. You're just invested in thinking of it as the default, right? And then people who are able to do that, right, who have the privilege of being able to do that, then hear other people say, what about me? Can't we value my culture? Can't people who come from my background be supported in getting into uni? Can people who look like me or sound like me have some support in getting less discrimination in hiring? All these sorts of things. And people go like, that feels like special pleading. You know, that feels like you're asking for an exception to be made for you that's going to put you above everybody else. But what they're actually asking for is this sort of invisible system to be leveled out. Um, but they just don't see that those inequalities already exist, right? Because you're invested in taking that for granted. So I think a lot of identity politics, that term often gets used in bad faith, basically as a way of dismissing people. The flip side is, I guess, that it is true to some extent that activist movements in general and minority communities to some extent as well have become a bit more focused on identity, as opposed to, for example, like let's talk about economic justice or let's talk about, you know, like anti-fascism, like combating some of those really physical threats. A little bit of that energy has shifted towards like, let's express ourselves and let's value who we are. And, but also sometimes like, let's say who has the right to speak based on where they come from or something like that. And reproducing some of that logic. It's not, I don't think it's totalizing. I think it is happening a little bit more than it used to. But again, I think some of those things can be seen as responses to some of this really long history of trying to get some of the stuff sorted out and not coming through. Right. So like, Maybe you think we got to up our people, we got to up the Pakistani community or the Black community or whatever, because no one else is taking care of us. And we have three generations worth of experience to show that, right? And so you become a little bit more inward looking because of that history. I think my take is I see it as like non-white people, people of color, we need to create our own spaces and we need to create representation to be heard and seen. So I think identity, I think this is subject to change. I think identity currently is very pivotal and um, significant because 
we need to embrace our differences in order to hopefully one day create a society, a nation, a universe which is more inclusive and accepting. However, like it would be nice to be able to get to a point where we don't have to, it's not necessarily essential to refer to someone mm. by their identity. Currently, I think it's kind of rude. <laughs> I think if someone's non-white and they're not um, referred to or seen as their person slash community slash heritage, I think it's kind of um, insulting because we're in a position where we need to um, be vocalized and be um, represented and to be advocated for, you know? Yeah. But I can appreciate and acknowledge the pros and the cons, but I feel like at this current moment in time, the whole concept surrounding identity, especially for people of color, is uh, very um, crucial, I would say so. I, I think that that puts it really well, right? As long as you're going to continue to face disadvantage based on how other people perceive your identity, the ability to then recognize your own shared identity, often that comes, comes about based on that discrimination, that disadvantage, is a political tool. It's an asset. It's necessary. Yeah. Like, how else are you going to fight back, right? What's interesting is some of the tensions you see in activist circles in the UK among people of color is how wide to draw that circle, right? So we used to, among some activist circles, and you still see that in some groups these days, have this concept that we talk about about political blackness, right? And that wasn't really about where in the world that you came from or like the color of your skin, but like political blackness was about like the shared experience of discrimination and exclusion that came from being a migrant or non-white, right? And that made you sort of politically black. And then that label started to fragment in the 80s and 90s. So this is like ancient history now, you know? That, like, that label started to fragment in the 80s and 90s because communities were saying, you know, we're drawing the circle too wide and it's making it harder to focus on some of the concerns that are more particular to us, right? Islamophobia, actual anti-Blackness in this sort of more race sense, right? The different needs of African versus Caribbean communities or whatever communities were saying, you know, we're losing some of the focus on the things that are hurting us. And we don't feel valued for who we are, right? We don't feel generally Black. We feel specifically Ghanaian or something, right? Mm -hmm. And so that sort of fragmented apart. And now some activists are like, okay, we can see why that happened, but we've lost something where we've lost the ability to name the underlying forces that structure all of these forms of exclusion that we face, even if they have different outcomes for different communities, right? The, these, these are kind of ongoing debates. They don't have easy answers. Mm -hmm. but it's, it's like, like you say, you know, it is about identity as a political tool and then people just figuring out how to use it basically effectively. Yeah. All of us are shaped in different ways by all these like, different forces and all these different dimensions of who we are, including like gender, race and class. Do identities always recognize all of these elements or do they put more emphasis on one thing more than others? And on, on the back of that, how do minority identities play with, reject, or take up social expectations of these groups? Um, I mean, for the for the first one, when we when we talk about you know identity as something that is imposed on us, I guess maybe I was being a tiny bit too simplistic before by saying it's always just about how people read us. It's also sometimes about how we're positioned within systems, right? So maybe maybe you're you know, not getting a promotion because, like, you're a woman and your boss is a bit sexist, but it might also be because, like, you're a woman, you've come to identify with or learn a certain way of expressing yourself, and that way of expressing then makes you seem somehow a little bit less valuable or competent or whatever it might be, 
And so it's kind of like a secondary thing, right? So it's not always about people reading you directly, but it's about like how our habits and our skills, all of which are sort of accessed unequally, then position us in certain ways, right? And so we can have these dimensions of identity when we're talking about our personal identity that are then more or less visible and knowable to us, right? And people also take them up in different ways. So when we talk about Black masculinity, sometimes, right? Black masculinity is really, I think, in many ways, heavily shaped by class as well, in that like very dominant forms of Black masculinity in the UK, like often play on this sort of like underdog, rags to riches kind of arc, right? So it's like, it's about being from the streets or like being very much in touch with the like working class context, but then somehow being very, very aspirational and aiming right for the top. And that is like the dominant model of Black masculinity. And there's lots of different ones, right? I don't want to overgeneralize, but like that is a very prominent one, right? And obviously class is a big part of that, right? Because it's about like playing with poverty and aspiration, but it's not named as a part of it the way in which like Black and masculine are. If you look at, you know, some of the art that exists, if you look at like hip hop and grime and like these forms, you know, like it, it is demonstrably tough, right? The masculinity is right at the front. And like, it, it's naming blackness all the time. And it's not naming class as class, except maybe as like wealth and aspiration, right? But it's not like talking about how are those opportunities structured, right? You'll, you'll get loads of lyrics that are about the ways in which race makes life unfair. You don't get loads of lyrics in the way in which like, actually not everybody is gonna like get the Lambo, you know? <laughs> like that's, that's not the narrative, right? And so people might be positioned in that way where actually in class terms also, they're facing really tough odds and unequal systems, but they're maybe not incorporating that dimension to their identity. And, and probably because like that's, that sucks, you know? Like you don't want to form an image of yourself as probably the odds are against you. Um, you want to form an image of yourself as tough and capable. And so people often draw on the elements of their positioning and the elements of the identities that are ascribed to them that in some ways feel empowering or valuable. And I guess that sort of leads to the question as to how minority identities relate to sort of majority ones and but also the way in which they're read and the way in which like what society expects from minorities. And I, there, there's this really interesting dance that happens, which is that like people often don't reject the ways in which they're sort of characterized or even stereotyped outright, but they play with those things, right? So like, there is this sort of, again, dominant stereotype that isn't necessarily true, but it's a stereotype about like both Black men and women as tough, right? As like assertive and loud and aggressive. And, you know, one of the cultural responses you get is to play with it, right? And it's, it's a bit subversive and is, I think, quite cheeky. It's not about like, Like you say, I'm tough, so I'm going to be tough, but it's like, let me have some fun with that, you know? But at the same time, people will do that because it exists in this sort of compromise position, I think, between like, it is really hard to just fully write your own story and say like, none of the above, right? Like I'm starting from scratch. You can't define me. Where are the cultural resources for that, right? Where are the sort of stories and narratives that you're going to build that other identity out of? It's both sort of, sometimes more accessible, but also sometimes more powerful to take something you've been given and twist it, right? Because um, that is subversive and it's challenging to push back. And so a lot of subcultural or minority identities do get built in that sort of way in dialogue with stereotypes and in dialogue with kind of dominant social perceptions. And then that leaves 
without other things, you know, so that like, I really want to be very careful here and not generalize, but I would say that with some of the young black men that I've worked with, it is harder to be accepting of queer identities or gay people or whatever within the sort of dominant frameworks of black masculinity that they might be holding on to because toughness is so important, right? Again, I really want to be clear that that's not everybody, but like you can see this tension within certain individuals, right? That like they are so invested in toughness and being like a certain model of success as well that is often like, you know, men with loads of women and all these sorts of like images that like they maybe are being, again, more cheeky and sincere about, but like are somehow quite integral to how they see themselves. And then like queerness doesn't sit comfortably within that frame and so it gets erased or it has to sort of do its own thing with black masculinity and reappropriate and twist it in a creative way. But, but the space for it either way becomes a little bit more constricted, right? So I think these, these identities often are both quite political in ways that people don't recognize or value properly, that like they are their challenges, right? That, that, that's, you know, it's not like black masculinity in that dominant form exists because people just want to feel tough. It's actually because like, what do you do when you're stereotyped as tough all the time, when you're written off as a thug, when you're even, you know, like I work with kinder, not kindergartners, that's North American, <laughs> just, you know, people in your, kids in year one who are like treated already as if they were going to be thugs when they grew up, right? It's like your, your story is written for you by these stereotypes sometimes, right? And so what you do is you take it and you twist it and you use it as a form of resistance, but then you're also still kind of locked within that framework sometimes. Do you think it's possible to create an identity which doesn't either subvert or go along with identities which are imposed on us? Is there another option? That's an interesting question. I kind of don't think so. Um, maybe that's not very encouraging, but like this, this is my anthropological background speaking, right? Which is to say that when you think like an anthropologist, you realize how much of how we think how we express ourselves and the things that we like learn to love and feel and like what we find attractive and desirable and tasty and like good music and all these things all these things are cultural we we get these things from elsewhere and we humans are not really ever inventing things out of thin air but what we are gonna is remix right like we're, we're human creativity is actually about taking influences and experiences and like twisting and combining them in new ways so like even when you see things like th there are now growing communities and subcultures around queer people of color queer black men in the uk they're playing with western ideas of queerness for example right um it's a little bit inspired by drag and it's a little bit inspired by like figures in hip-hop that have been doing like things with queerness and it's remix right it's about taking influences from maybe not the dominant stereotypes that are put on you or from the sort of dominant subculture, the dominant form of Black masculinity that you're facing, but maybe taking it from elsewhere, from within queer culture, from within gay culture, from within like arts um, kind of quite globally or looking to other cultural forms of expression. And again, globally, we can do this in a very wide range of way now because we're all kind of connected. And then, and then building a sort of new identity from those different components, but it's always sort of inspired from somewhere. I just want to say thank you so much. And um, we really appreciate your time and your input and your contribution from me to you and from everyone here. Thank you very much. Well, thank you. It's been fun to join you guys. Keep up the good work.
I was fascinated by what Furham had to say about identity. His explanation of the three elements of identity was so valuable. And it struck me that outside perceptions of our own identities are so entrenched that our only option is to subvert them or go along with them. I was also interested to hear about his perspective on how migration plays into our identities. Whether you are Black African or like myself, Black Caribbean, most of us living in the UK have parents or grandparents who migrated to the UK for an education, a job or simply a better life. But this comes with a lot of confusion as second generation kids grappling with culture clashes and our sense of place in two very different worlds. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Mangrove. In next week's episode, we'll be talking to Florence, Sabrina and Aomi Day from Just For Kids Law about the education system and the changes needed for it to better support young black boys. To make sure you don't miss out, follow or subscribe to Mangrove wherever you are listening. And if you can, please share, leave a rating and a review as it helps people find us.